Hey fam, I don't know about you, but I am having a hard time believing that Thanksgiving is in one week. We all know that this is the time of year where we pause to think about the things that we have to be grateful for in our lives. And it's the reason why I decided to drop this one with you guys this week. So I've been holding on to it for a while. It's one that I did with a dear friend who was a nurse on the front lines of COVID in the early days before we even knew what we were dealing with. And once the Delta variant hit, I felt like I needed to wait, but now seemed like a perfect time to bring it to you because it is the season of gratitude. and It is a chance for us to be grateful to all the men and women who've been there for us, those first responders, those in the hospitals, while we've been going through this awful pandemic. So take a listen and when you're done, stop a nurse, a doctor, an EMT, and just tell them how grateful you are for their sacrifice. Welcome to In My Shoes. It is a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues we're facing every day. And I'm your host, Karen Davis-Thompson, and I am excited to have a good friend with me today. I'm going to have Maria introduce herself and then tell you a little bit about why I asked her to be on the mic with me today. So Maria, tell everybody hi. Hey, how are you? I am good. So tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, my name is Maria Rojas. Um, I am a registered nurse, and I currently work at the James A. Haley VA with our America's Heroes. Um, I've been working there for approximately 14 and a half years. I'm an ICU nurse that um, had to deal with the COVID pandemic when it first broke out. I have been nursing for the last 25 years. Um, I came up in the trenches as a CNA, LPN, RN. Um, I got my associate's bachelor's and then my master's in education. So um, slowly but surely, I've been coming up and um, I had the privilege of currently working with um, our veterans. Thank you for that intro. And that leads into what I wanted to talk to you about. I saw some of your posts as we were all grappling with this pandemic and about some of the things that you were experiencing. And I hadn't had the chance to really speak to anybody who was living it day to day. You know, at the time there was so much going on and it was, I'm sure, so emotional and um, draining physically and emotionally that I just didn't think reaching out during that time would be appropriate. But now that we see a little light at the end of the tunnel, there's still a lot going on. People, we still in the pandemic. Um, I thought this would be a time to really kind of reach out and talk to you. So we'll get to your experience in a moment. But first, why did you decide that you wanted to be a nurse? You know, I served in the armed forces for about eight and a half years and um, fresh out of high school. And I originally wanted to become a veterinarian. Well, once I went into the military and I did my stint in the Air Force, and then I was following my husband around, um, as a military wife, I found that it was very difficult to find a job in uh, every place we moved. So I had to have a career field where wherever we went, um, I would be able to find a job and help my husband support our family. Um, I We were living in Georgia, actually in, in Adel, Georgia, when um, I was working at a convenience store in that really small, tiny town. And um, I was assaulted by a convicted felon on my way out of the store one night when we were closing up. And I ended up going into the very small hospital there that really didn't have um, the capabilities of handling any such trauma. So um, from there, I went into a CNA class in order to get my mind off of everything that had happened to me and just to try to get my life back in on track. And um, 
I kind of just fell into nursing that way. I became a CNA and I loved it and um, kept progressing from there. So, you know, from something good, I mean, from something bad came something really, really good. I never knew that about you. So how did the experience, do you think, affect you and how does it affect the way that you deal um, with your patients on a day-to-day basis? You know, um, the small little hospital that uh, the community hospital that they took me to didn't know how to deal with someone who had just gone through um, such a traumatic event. And they were not um, well-versed in, in how to handle someone. So they were, all they did was try to give me medication in order to calm me instead of trying to talk to me or, you know, trying to um, try to get to the root of what was going on, you know, trying, just trying to talk me down it for them. It was just, you know, give her this injection and try to calm her down that way. Um, the paramedics, when they arrived on the scene, the first thing they did was they started pulling at my clothes, which caused even more trauma. Yes. I had blood on my clothes because of my hand where I had had the knife embedded in my hand, but they were trying to see had I been stabbed anywhere else. And instead of trying to talk to me, they um, immediately just went to like ripping at my clothes. Well, hello, that guy just tried to rape me. Okay, so you're adding trauma on top of trauma. So um, now whenever I deal with my patients, um, I have the luxury working in the ICU of being able to sit at the bedside and talk to them and get to know them and, um, and see where they're coming from because a lot of them were dealing with basically the same thing when because they have PTSD. So you have to be very careful in how you approach and how um, you deal with them. So walking in, identifying yourself, explaining who you are um, and what you're doing there and how you're there to help them is, is a big, uh, is a segue in order to provide um, the care that they need. And even if a patient is intubated and they're sedated, I still always go in and talk to them and introduce myself because you really don't know um, if they can understand you or if they, they can always hear you, but you don't know if they're processing, you know, somebody walking in and um, helping them. And if you just walk in the door and you start pulling at things or pulling at their covers and trying to shift them around and they don't even know who you are or that you're there to me, um, I've lived through it. So that's why I always try to identify myself and, and treat them like if they were actually able to still talk to me. Got you. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And um, it sounds like you were able to turn it into something that you've been able to use um, as you care for others. Um, uh, And it's always really um, interesting when I talk with people that I've known for a while and you learn things about them uh, that you just didn't know. So tell me now how, you know, you get to, to our area now where we live in the Tampa Bay area. How did you land at the VA? Well, we were stationed, like I said, at uh, Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. And um, my husband retired from there. And um, we had family or he had family here in the Tampa Bay area. And he was accepted into um the local community college. So we came here so that he could go to school. Um, you know, we had never been around family being in the military. We were always going from one military installation to the next. So we felt that it would be nice to be around family for a while. And um, while he completed his education, and then we were going to see where we wanted to um, set down roots for the rest of our lives. Well, he ended up getting a job at the postal 
um, with the postal service here and that, you know, we enjoyed being around family and that made our decision for us. And that's how we ended up uh, here in the Tampa Bay area now for the last 25, 26 years. And then you ended up, what, 14 years ago? Was there something about the VA that pulled you there or was it uh, a chance to, because I, I assume if you guys have been here 25 years, were there other places where you worked as a nurse before landing at the VA? I did. I worked at the, um, at St. Joe's um, in Tampa off of MLK. I worked there for a while. And then um, I, when we moved here to the Brandon area, I started working at a nursing home. It's the Brandon Health and Rehab. And I worked there for a little over seven, eight years. And while I was there, I completed my education. Um, And then I went to work for Brandon Hospital where I worked in the newborn nursery, mother baby area. Um, And then you know, one day I was working in the nursery and there was so many babies in there that um, I always kept telling the nurses, you can't keep leaving all these babies in here. There's too many for me to monitor, you know, and make sure that everybody stays safe. Well, that morning, it had to have been about three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. I heard a baby choke. He was choking and I couldn't figure out which one it was because I had about 18 babies in the room. So by the time I got to that baby, um, you know, we had to call for, uh, we had to call a code because the baby was turning blue on me and, um, he ended up going down into the NICU and I was so upset about the fact that, um, lack of resources, um, you know, there was never enough nurses in the, on the floor. We never had enough staff to help, um, you know, monitor the babies properly. And, you know, some parents just didn't want to keep them in their rooms. It was just a mixture of a lot of things. And um, there was a big, huge one-page ad that the VA had posted in the newspaper. And it said that on Monday, they were going to be holding um, on-site interviews. And this was Sunday night going into Monday morning. So I called out for Monday Monday night and because um, I was a night nurse. And I went over to the VA and I interviewed and I got hired into their critical care internship program. And um, the rest is... You know, I'm still there today. I love it. I absolutely love working there. So again, something bad had to happen for something good to come out of it. So fast forward now, and it is what 2019 and um, 2020. We're getting into that time frame, and you hear about this thing called the coronavirus or COVID-19. When did you first hear about it? And what were you all told as nurses? What were you seeing in the hospital in the very early stages as we were trying to figure out what was going on? Um, we, when we first heard about it, it had to have been um, right about December of 2019, um, early January. And it was one of these, you know, there's a virus going on out there. Um, we need to kind of um, be ahead of it, just, you know, just to be on the safe side. And, and um, we're going to start locking down our nursing home because we have a very large nursing home um, on premises along with our other vulnerable population, which is our spinal cord population that's also attached to our hospital. So very early on, um, I'd say a good six weeks, to six to eight weeks before um COVID, the COVID virus really was, you know, affecting people. We had already closed down our 
uh, vulnerable populations to any outside visitors because we wanted to make sure that we could keep them safe. So um, that's where we originally started was, I think it was in January um, when we really started closing down our uh, doors to our nursing home and to our spinal cord population so that we could keep them safe. Um, from there, they started talking about um, our emergency management people came in and they spoke to us about, you know, these are some, this is some of the equipment that we might be using. Should we need to, um, these are the masks that we're going to be using. Uh, our simulation instructors came in and we ended up having to learn how to put the um, equipment on and take it off safely so that that way we wouldn't um, bring the virus or if we were in a contaminated area, we could um, decontaminate ourselves and then come back out into the area where everyone else was working and not have to worry about carrying the virus from one area to the next. So we started doing a lot of education and a lot of, um, you know, making sure that our pa patients were safe early on. And early on, what were they telling you about this virus? What what were the first things that you all were told about what this was and how long perhaps it was going to last? What what Was there a lot of information about how uh, patients would be impacted? What was that information like in the beginning? Honestly, we had almost no information. Um, we knew that it was transmitted via um, droplet. So, you know, it could come out if somebody sneezed, if somebody coughed, somebody speaking, you know, um, it was transmitted that way. At first they thought it was just airborne and then they said that it was, um, you know, droplet. So it, we, every, it was forever changing. We never knew, um, we could never get anyone to tell us exactly, you know, how long is this was going to affect someone? What the incubation period was? First, it was seven day, ten days, then it went to seven days, and then they said, "Well, it might even be up to fourteen days." So everything was very um, up in the air and very, very fluid. We never knew um, from one day to the next what information we were going to be receiving because the virus was so new and it was affecting people in so many different ways. Um, you know, some people were being affected with their lungs, other people were being affected, you know, their hearts were being affected. Um, then if you ended up with heart, it, it affecting your lungs and your heart, then all of a sudden it affected your kidneys and your livers and you had total um, shutdown. So it was just real piecemeal at the beginning. Even six months into the pandemic, when we were working with our patients in the ICU, we still didn't know um, how to effectively treat them. It was more a supportive role that we were doing. Sure, we were giving them convalescent plasma, but now we know that um, it's only like 20 to 25% effective, you know, um, and only on certain individuals. Um, you know, the medications that we were giving them, we were kind of like tossing it in it was like throwing something against the wall and seeing if it stuck. So we really never had any true guidance because it was all so very new. And was there ever a time or what was the period when I would look on the news and I saw some of your posts and listened to other nurses and doctors, there was a point where it was almost like at a breaking point at some hospitals where it was like almost every patient that came in, it was COVID, COVID, COVID. 
Um, did it ever get to that point at the VA? And at what point were you just feeling a sense of this is just overwhelming um, for the hospital and for you? Well, um, I worked in the medical ICU and it was like one day we walk in and they had cleared out our unit and we have a 12 bed medical ICU and we're like, what's going on? Where are our patients? And um, we were told that they had been shifted to the cardiac wing and to the surgical ICUs because they, we were now the COVID ICU. So we were never um, told or asked if we could you know, if we were in agreement to being the COVID unit. So we kind of were thrown into that. Um, our emergency room ended up being in our garage so that that way they could identify those that were could possibly have COVID and isolate them in one area. And then those that were not could be taken into the hospital. So um, the those were things that those of us that were working up front and uh, – with the patients who were coming in with COVID um, were having to deal with. I'd say that of every veteran that came into the ER during the height of the pandemic, we would have at least out of every five patients that we would have come in, um, it was almost about two patients out of every five that would come in would have COVID. Some of them would be admitted. Some of them um, were not bad enough to be admitted into the hospital or their symptoms were not bad enough and they were being sent home to quarantine. Um, those that we did get into the hospital, we had two unit, two other floor units that were set up for nothing but COVID patients. And during the height of the pandemic, they were full. And there was a time when our ICU um, was full at the same time. So there was a time when I would come home or I would go to work and, you know, you pray that you don't bring anything home to your families. It's for me, I don't think I was so much concerned for me catching anything. It was more, I was so concerned about the possibility of bringing it home. And it, at home, it was just my husband and I. So we quarantined ourselves from the very time that we became a COVID unit, which was about, um, I'd say, middle of March. Um, and they just started having, uh, I'd say December, January of this year, they finally opened up the unit to where they were, it's a hybrid unit to where they can take both COVID and non-COVID patients. Um, so they were, we were a COVID unit for almost a year and a full COVID unit. And we were always at least six beds, six to seven beds full of the COVID patients. So you know, when you come home, I was like going back, just backtracking a little bit. When you would come home from work, you know, you, you stripped your shoes off and you left them in your car and, and you walked into, you parked in the garage and came into the house and you stripped in the laundry room and you threw everything into the washer and immediately went into the guest bathroom to take your shower. And I slept in the guest bedroom while I was at work and we didn't see family. Um, we didn't see any of our friends. It was just us here at home. We would only go out if we needed to get groceries. And even then, you know, I took advantage of the fact that you could buy everything online and then just go pick it up. Um, you know, my husband and I would go out to the park and we'd take long walks just to get out of the house and, and spend some time together away from being, you know, just 
kind of sequestered in our home. Um, but it was a long time before we even thought to go out and mingle out in public because of the fact that um, I just didn't know if I had the virus and I was asymptomatic and I, I couldn't have lived with myself had I given it to anybody else. And how did that uh, take a toll on you emotionally? I know you talked a little bit about obviously not being able to see family and friends when that's part of the reason why you moved here uh, had to be difficult. But just what were you going through day in and day out having to work in that environment um, for that length of time? You know, um, it was devastating. And we already work with a population that is might not make it because by the time they come to us, they're so sick that they're, they're already, um, there's a possibility, like a 75% possibility that they're not going to make it. And uh, when COVID hit, everybody that would come in to us, we were, was not making it. Um, they would become intubated. Um, and then even when they were at the full capacity of the ventilator, it didn't matter. They had no family. They had no family there. So it was just very emotional when the patients didn't have any family and we had to be there, be there to hold their hands and be with them when they were dying. And, you know, when you're holding so many hands and they can't even see you, you're you're so garbed up. You've got this big helmet on like you're some outer space alien and, you know, you've got gloves on your hand, double gloved. Your hands are double gloved and you've got on a yellow gown and they can't even make out who's standing next to their bedside. How can you comfort someone that way? And they were having to die this way with no family, um, no one but you know, somebody garbed up like an alien at the bedside. And when we family could see them, it would have to do it via um, an iPad. And to me, that was even more devastating to see the family crying and not being able to hold or comfort or, um, you know, give them a hug, anything to be able to say their goodbyes. And that to me was the most devastating of all. You know, and this is part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation. I don't think that people really realize just how difficult it was for all of you on the front lines. So I was going to ask that question. I'm sure it had to be hard to um, watch them try to communicate with this loved one who's now on a ventilator, probably cannot speak, may not even be uh, fully conscious and know that, you know, they're just going to get a call from somebody saying that their loved one has passed on and they aren't able to be there um, to at least say their goodbyes with that person, um, you know, before they pass on. Uh, so was that something that you all had to get into or who was responsible for calling these families once their loved one uh, had passed away? We would call, um, the nurses would call the family and say, you know, your mom or your dad's not doing real well. Um, if you would like, we can hook up the um, iPad and and you can see them if you'd like. But this is what you're going to be seeing. And we would have to tell them about the ventilator and about the fact that there was going to be multiple IV poles running because of the medications that we had. Um, we had to tell them about the fact that they were not going to be able to respond to them. Um, 
simply because they might be on sedation or they were so um, so ill that there was no way that the loved one was going to be able to respond to them in any manner. And we would have to walk them through everything that they were going to be seeing before we would turn the iPad on. Sometimes a family wouldn't want to see it and they just wanted to for us to put the phone next to their ear so that they could say that they loved them. And then there was some family that um, they wanted to be on the iPad for hours. And unfortunately, we couldn't be in the room with that with their loved one for that length of time. And, you know, we would set up times and it was horrible because we would have to set up times at the date and the time that we could go in in order to put this iPad up so that they could see their loved one or speak to their loved one. And the, the humanity of it and the, was removed. There was no, I felt like there was no empathy at that point. You know, there was no, no, everything that we became nurses to do to provide that comfort and that, that support, we could only do it to a fraction of what, we wanted to because we couldn't hold somebody's hand, you know, skin to skin. We couldn't speak to them to where they could hear our voices because we were having to speak through these muffled helmets that we had on. So the comfort that we could offer was so minimal, not only to them, but to the family when we went in the room, you know, and and then the family couldn't even come up to the room or even come up and see their loved one after they were gone because they were still considered to be contagious. So their last hug that they gave their loved one before they left home or when they left them in the emergency room was, was all that they could hang on to. And that, that was really um, difficult for me to deal with. So after I had done that, I'd say for about a good eight months, um, I ended up transferring out of the unit and um, getting finding another job within the VA because it was just so heart wrenching, and and everything that I believed in as a nurse and as a human being, I, I couldn't offer to them in their final moments, and I found that I was bringing that home more often than not. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, what that was like. And like I said, I, I thought of you often when I would see you post periodically um, on Facebook and how tr- troubling and trying that had to be. Uh, so now this has been going on for months and uh, taking a toll on, I'm sure, hundreds of you working at the hospital. When did you all first begin to get wind or hear about a vaccine and what were you told about that? Well, we were always um, keep they always kept us abreast of what was going on and the vaccine. I'm not exactly sure when um, we found out that the vaccine was a possibility, but you know, they, the minute that the vaccine was available, they brought it into the VA and uh, no sooner did they get the vaccine into the hospital and it hit the, uh, the back, you know, uh, the back entrance to the hospital, we already had teams inside that um, were starting to vaccinate the nurses or anybody who happened to be in the hospital at that time. And they started with the frontline nurses. Um, I think it was, we learned of it sometime in February. 
or was it January? I'm not even sure when it was when they first started talking to us about the vaccine. But the minute that the vaccine was available, we ended up um, receiving it there at the VA. And the Pfizer was the first one that hit the back uh, the back deck and came into the hospital. And, and that very night, we started um, vaccinating nurses who wanted to be vaccinated. So we didn't waste any time in um, in getting everybody vaccinated. I mean, there's still the nurses that that um, don't believe in it or holding out. But for the most part, um, um, when we last checked, we had at least over 75 percent of the nurses in the hospital had been vaccinated. And when you hear people who seem skeptical of the vaccine, uh, when you see that there are so many people who, um, you know, like when I did, I think I, I told you right before we started recording that I spoke with a doctor who um you know, broke down the virus, uh, what's in the vaccine and that sort of thing. And we were really talking about why there may be some, some skepticism in communities of color because of things that happened in the past, et cetera. And some of the vile comments that people made to the post about, hey, listen to this interview, I had to delete. I mean, they were, they were, I, I, it was mind boggling some of the stuff people were saying about her. She's a liar. And I'm thinking, y'all don't even know this lady. Um, how do you feel when, I mean, obviously there are strong viewpoints on either side, but when you see people who don't want to take it, who, you know, now we have this honor system with masks, which I don't quite get because how do you know if I'm really telling the truth or not? After being um, in that situation for months and what you've been through, how do you feel about that? You know, um, as far as the vaccines, I had, I went into the vaccine clinic because they closed down our um, the new job I had gone into because they wanted us to vaccinate as many people as possible. So they took the six of us who worked in that particular area and they, and we went to work at the vaccine clinic. You would not believe how many veterans were lining up at four o'clock in the morning, four thirty in the morning, even though we didn't open till six thirty. They were there from about four thirty, you know, in the morning, lined up to get their vaccine. And we're not talking about the young ones, the young ones are the skeptical ones. The, we're talking about our 98, you know, 95, 90 year old World War II vets who came there with their families and they were there at 4.30 in the morning to get their vaccine. Um, and then you ran into the younger generation, you know, those that have been in Afghanistan and and stuff like that. And those are the ones that are much more skeptical about taking the vaccine. Um, but we found that even those that were skeptical about the vaccine and were, and I'm, I'm just speaking about the veterans that I, I vaccinated, they would come in and they're like, you know, I really don't want to take this, but um, if it's going to keep me, keep my wife happy, or if it's going to let me travel, or if it's going to let me see my grandkids, then I'm just going to go ahead and take it. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't because they had you know, really strong feelings, yes or no. It was more of, I want to be able to keep living my life. And the only way that I can see my grandbabies or the only way that I can travel with my family is by taking this vaccine. And then um, I ran into nurses who we work with who were so opposed to the vaccine that they were just really hateful about it. They're like, they're trying to um, manipulate us. There's something in the vaccine that 
um, they're trying to keep track of us with. Um, you never know if, you know, they're putting something in there that, that they can, they're trying to control our minds. And these are people who are educated that were saying these things. And I'm like, you've got to be out of your mind. You know, how can you, how can you even think something like that when studies are showing, studies are proving, and they're like, yeah, but anybody can manipulate that. You know, all that can be manipulated. And I said, I could understand if it was being manipulated only in the United States. I said, but these vaccines are being given worldwide. They're being researched worldwide and everyone's coming up with the same information. So how can it all be skewed? How can it all be manipulated? So, you know, we found um, just like you, you said, you know, people got real nasty and hateful. I've been called some pretty nasty names um, because I was wearing this T-shirt that said something about um, COVID vaccine or that I was on the COVID vaccination team. And I went out to go grab something. Um, I think it was in Publix. No, it was at Walmart. I was at Walmart and somebody stopped me and asked me if I was um, vaccinating. And I said, yeah, you know, I work at the VA and I work in the vaccine clinic. And um, they had some pretty choice words for me. And uh, I all I could do was stand there, you know, and, and with my mouth open because I really couldn't believe, you know, that I was being attacked in this manner simply for trying to do a public service. And I guess what I don't understand is, has anybody ever explained to you why nobody thinks that about the flu vaccine or when we were vaccinating kids for chickenpox, rubella, like nobody thought that it was a mind trick or that they were trying to control us. Do you think it's because of the um, how quick this vaccine was done or what is it about this particular vaccine when we've been you know, advocating the flu vaccine? Please get your flu shot, get your flu shot. Like I've heard that for years, you know, in the workplace. So what is it about this vaccine? Like we could attract people if that's what you could do with a vaccine with the flu for years. So has anybody ever explained to you what is it about the COVID vaccine that makes it something where it's a mind trick? No, you know, a, a lot of the things that I would hear was that um, it originated in China and it was used as a, um, it was used as a weapon. It was a bio a bioweapon that they had made in China and had, you know, sent out to the world and sent into the U.S. because that's how they were trying to um, eliminate the U.S. and the Americans. And I'm, I was like, I don't understand where this is coming from. And they're like, well, yeah, you know, it started in Wuhan, China. And, and you know, they did it because they were trying to decrease our numbers in the U.S. and they're trying to disseminate the American people. And I was like, you know, I think a lot of it and the reason people don't want to take the vaccine, and this is just my opinion, and from uh, the information that I got from a lot of people that I've spoken to, is I think politics, unfortunately, played such a big role in the fact that people had no faith in the vaccine. Um, we had someone who was in office who decided to take it upon himself to spread misinformation. And unfortunately, um, if you tell somebody a lie enough times, they're going to believe it and they're going to take it as being the truth. And I think that's what we're still trying to fight today um, in getting more people vaccinated and and getting our communities healthy. And until we can 
cross that or we can change that, um, unfortunately, we're still going to have those people who are going to continue to say that um, that it was something that was man-made and that the vaccine isn't effective, that it's just something that um, the government is using to try to manipulate them or trying to, um, you know, control them in some way. And we give this vaccine in this tiny, tiny needle with this tiny needle. And I actually had people tell me, ask me if there was a chip in a needle. You know, if I was inserting a chip when I gave him this 0.3 mLs of a vaccine and I was like, no, if someone can come up with a chip that tiny, I said, they're going to make an awful lot of money. Yeah, I've heard that before, too. They're they're tracking you. And I'm thinking, my God, they're tracking us on our cell phones for Pete's sake. They don't need to make a chip. I mean, they're tracking you on your cell. All of this really cool stuff you can do with your phone and your your smart box that turns your lights on and off or whatever. That's what they're tracking us with. Yeah. <laughs> Big brother knows exactly where you are because of that that's cell phone me. you have stuck in the back of your pocket, you yeah, know, for sure. Yeah. So one more question about this, and then I want to get to uh, how you were one of the uh, first responders uh, selected for the Super Bowl. But I'm curious, are you all seeing an increase with this Delta variant that seems to be taking hold? And how do you feel about that? Are you concerned that, you know, we're opening up yet we haven't reached herd immunity and now you have this Delta variant that's out there? You know, um, I'm just speaking from the experience that I have at the VA. We are seeing a total decrease in number of COVID patients because we have vaccinated, um, last we checked, I think we had vaccinated over 78% of our veterans or 75% of our veterans had been vaccinated here at the VA. Um, So we've been seeing a decrease in the amount of COVID that's coming in through our emergency rooms. Um, On a daily basis, we might have one or two patients that are admitted into the hospital um, that have COVID. So we never run more than maybe two, three patients on any given day that are in the hospital with COVID. And we haven't had anyone in the ICU for over a month now that has had COVID. So um, we're seeing a decrease in that. As far as the Delta variants, um, if people vaccinate, then the vaccination that we currently have is showing um, that it is you are less likely to get and have um, any type of um, really bad symptoms or, or, you know, really get affected by the Delta variants. So, you know, vaccination is everyone's, you know, best um, option of making sure that they go on with their lives and that we can continue we can open everything back up again and then we can be, um, we can go back to where we were at one time. It's, it's just like with, you know, measles and, and mumps and rubella and, and scarlet fever and, and everything else, you know, polio. If we could just get people to get vaccinated, um, then we could reach that herd immunity and, and we could get this thing under control, you know? Yeah, I agree. I I do worry about, uh, the number of people. And I have friends and some family members who they feel like, well, I, I want to wait and see. Uh, and for some people, it's how quickly the vaccine uh, was developed. For some, I do think that you're right. Politics and some of the things that people have been saying um, have really fueled some of this. And it's really sad uh, to see. Uh, but but I want to talk a little bit. Oh, did you want to comment? I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, 
Um, speaking of, you know, how quickly the vaccine came out, what a lot of people don't realize that this is COVID-19, okay? We have a vaccine for SARS. We have a vaccine for, um, you know, all of these other viruses that have that are COVID-related because as far as, you know, SARS, that's COVID, um, only it's a different number. Um, whenever we had the flu, we had that the swine flu, and that came out, that's also a COVID, you know? So what people don't understand is that the COVID vaccine, a vaccine for COVID has always been out there. All they did was they took what they had already been working on in those other strains, and they separated this new strain of COVID-19, and they were able to actually work much quicker because of the fact that we already had some vaccines um, for all of these other previous COVIDs. And that's why it went so much faster because all they did was they took what they already knew and they used it on this new strain and to develop a vaccine for it. And it wasn't only done in the United States, it was done worldwide. So you had all of these brilliant people who were working on something together. They might not have been in the same lab or anything like that, but they were all working together in on a vaccine that had already been, um, we already had the basis for it. All they did was take this new strand and use the old stuff that we had and kind of tweaked it to the new one in order to get a vaccine out faster. So it's not something that they had to work from scratch in order to get to where we were. It's just that they took um, an, an old strain and tweaked it to the new one to get us the vaccine that we have today. And, and in layman's terms, that's about the best that I can, um, that I can explain. You know, I guess I hadn't thought about that. It's COVID-19. Like I, I, I guess I never thought about why it was COVID-19. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really an excellent point. Hopefully people listening to this who are still debating, uh, will give that a little bit of thought. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I want to talk now about how, so, you know, the Super Bowl, Tampa Bay Bucks won uh-huh. and <laughs> you had the opportunity. They invited a lot of people who were on the front lines, first responders to attend. So you were one of those who were chosen to attend. How did that happen? Oh my goodness. Um, well, the NFL got together with, um, the vaccine people and they said, okay, we're going to um, recognize those first responders and nurses and healthcare workers who have stepped up first and taken the vaccine and said, hey, you know, I'm I'm going to go ahead and get this taken care of because I'm taking care of the of the population and we need to make sure that we're vaccinated first so that that way um, we can offer we can stay healthy in order to take care of others. And um, when they started vaccinating us at the VA, I was one of the first ones that went in and got vaccinated. Well, when the NFL came in and said they were going to do that, they sent out emails, an, a mass email to everyone in the hospital. And they said, okay, um, if you've had your vaccines, you've had to have both of your vaccines and you'd have to be 10 days post your second vaccine, you can go ahead and apply to go into this big pool of nurses. And we're going to do a random drawing to see um, 
you know, who gets selected so that you can go. At the VA, we had 150 slots. Um, Tampa General, they had like almost 700. So depending on the amount of nurses that you had that worked for you determined how many um, tickets were given out um, to that particular hospital. So I filled in all my paperwork and, you know, crossed my fingers and, and sent everything in. And then the hospital management went through everyone who had applied or who had put their name in the hat and they verified everyone who'd had their vaccine. And um, then it went to a random drawing and I was selected to go. So, uh, I mean, it was an absolute wonderful time. They had a huge um, show for us. Miley Cyrus was there and Joan Jett and, and they had this all for the healthcare workers. And, um, you know, we had our seats and, and they fed us and just treated us like royalty. So the NFL really went out of their way to, um, to treat us to a wonderful Super Bowl that just happened to be here at home. I know. And we won. (laughs) And we won. (laughs) I mean, did you ever dream? What was it like when they said, and we've selected your name? What what did you think? Oh, my gosh. I was at work and I got an email and um, it said, oh, here, download this app. Your ticket is here. And I was like, huh? Oh, my God. And I remember I was sitting there looking at the computer and I'm like, oh, my God, somebody please read this. Tell me that if it's true or not. And and my girlfriend read it and she's like, are you flipping kidding me? You got selected to go to the Super Bowl. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and we were, I was dancing around. And then I found out that a couple more of my friends had also been selected. So, you know, it, it was very, I would never in a million years have paid that kind of money for a Super Bowl ticket. Um, but it was certainly on my bucket list. And I'm glad that, uh, I was able to go on somebody else's dime. <laughs> Tell me about it. I know I saw the pictures and I was like, Maria, I just talk about it. <laughs> I, like, I have got to talk to her about that. I know that had to be like and something that you'll never be able to repeat, right? Like Never, never. Like I said, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I was sitting like on the 48 yard line. I, I, I couldn't have had better tickets. I couldn't have asked for a better time. It was just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Okay. Now, before we end, I have to ask this. How did your husband feel about the fact that, uh, you were going to the Super Bowl and he was not. Oh my God, they were so salty. My husband, my sons, my my nephews, they were like, I don't get it. You really don't even like the the Buccaneers. You're a cowboy fan. How are you going to the Super Bowl? They shouldn't have given you a ticket. <laughs> I know, tell them it doesn't matter who you're rooting for. I was born and raised here and I'm not particularly a Bucks fan either. So don't feel bad. <laughs> I mean, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> exactly. I was like, do you really think I'm going to give up the opportunity to go to a Super Bowl? I said, I wouldn't have cared if the Bucks were playing in it or not. I said, just to be able to go. I said, that in itself is just, you know, a once in a lifetime opportunity. That's right. So tell them, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I, they- I did. I did. <laughs> I know they wanted to say, oh, just go sit down. <laughs> I know. They were like, I cannot believe you. And then I was sending them pictures throughout the game and stuff or throughout whatever I was doing. And they were like, okay, mom, you can stop with the pictures now. <laughs> You're just rubbing it in. 
gosh, well, Maria, I just want to thank you for taking this time and for uh, sharing your experience. I love you so much. And I had been um, just looking at the posts and when I felt the time was right, wanted to reach out to you. Um, and so I hope that this conversation and some of the things that you've shared will encourage others to really seriously think about helping us all to reach herd immunity so that maybe next year they can pack out the Super Bowl and people can go um, and check that off their bucket list. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> I know, right? It would be great. <laughs> it would. <laughs> if there is anything you want to hear us talk about on In My Shoes, you can hit me up at KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. You know the email address, KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. And until the next time, be blessed. Hey fam, don't forget we are in the middle of our Giving Tuesday challenge. We're trying to reach our donation goal before November 30th, which is Giving Tuesday. All of the information you need to help us out, you can find in the show notes. It'll tell you just what you need to do to donate. Also, go on over to our Facebook page, like and share this podcast, and let us know what you're grateful for this holiday season.